And uh, turn now to Mark chapter 12. We're going to read verses 35 to 44. Mark 12 and verse 35, and this is finishing off chapter 12. Very exciting. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How then is he his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues and the best places at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Now Jesus sat opposite the treasury and he saw how the people put money into the treasury and many who were rich put in much. Then one poor widow came and threw in two mites, which makes a quadrants. So he called his disciples to himself and said, Assuredly I say to you that this poor widow has put in more than all those who have given to the treasury. For they all put in out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had, her whole livelihood. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this part of your word that we have read together now and we ask as we study it together that you would grow us and shape us according to your will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So we've got a little bit of a change in the tone of Mark's gospel and what we read today. The uh, the previous four sections, four sermons that we've looked at, we've had people coming up to Jesus and asking him questions. Now, the first three were obviously quite hostile. The fourth one is often read as hostile, but I don't think it really was a hostile question from the scribe that we saw last week. This week, we've got at the end of uh, verse 34, where we finished last week, we didn't focus on this in the sermon, but after that, no one dared question him. There's not really many more questions coming. Jesus' wisdom and Ability to just not fall into these traps and ability to answer wisely everything, even these uh, apparently ministry-ending questions that have been concocted, is astounding and the people realise, we can't really question this guy anymore. We, we just don't have the... We, we can't do it. The setting is still in the temple courtyard. Jesus is still in the temple courtyard. But this week, we move from Jesus responding to to deliberate and explicit questions to more of a plain teaching mode in how he is talking to the people. It's important for us to understand that. Now, having said that, we might be wondering why the third word of our reading today is answered. Then Jesus answered and said, no one's asked him a question. Why is Jesus now answering? 
There's no question. What is going on here? Well, the reason I think this is here is that while there's been no direct question, the things that have come before this, the four sermons we've had leading into this, we've had Jesus answering leaders of the people, religious leaders, civil leaders of the people. And it's all led to an underlying but unspoken question, who is this? Who is Jesus really? Who is he? It's this floating question or perhaps an underlying question that's sort of hanging in the air and no doubt the crowds are thinking this, no one's asked it yet and Jesus is giving an answer to this question that hasn't yet been put to words. Now Jesus has shown so many times that he knows more than a a normal man would know. He knew the hearts of the people around him and he knew that this was something that needed to be addressed. Now one last thing before we get into the text properly. We know that Jesus knows that in less than a week he's going to die on the cross of Calvary. What we see from Jesus, particularly in verses 35 through to 37, might not be what we would consider the clearest thing that we could ever read. Jesus knows the crowds are going to turn against him. They've been singing Hosanna just two, three days before this. They are going to turn against him perhaps we look at this and go well maybe if jesus had just answered a little bit more directly the horrific ending could have been changed it's astounding the number of things i've read this week where people trying to figure out this passage ask that question we look at what jesus was going to go through what he went through both on the road to the cross and on the cross And personally, I look at that with horror at what Jesus had to go through. But also thankfulness, because the cross was not the end of the road. And if Jesus had not gone to the cross, then I have no hope for salvation. So maybe we'd look at this and say, if Jesus had been perhaps more, more direct, less referencing Old Testament stuff, maybe the cross could have been avoided. But I don't think that's the way we should look at this. I think we should look at this with thankfulness for how Christ responds. And what he does here with this teaching here, it's a brief, but it's almost a history and Old Testament lesson here. The Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 110, where David wrote the stuff that we see Christ recite. Now, this psalm is one that, at least nowadays, we refer to as a messianic psalm. It's all about the Messiah. And Jesus here, with this question of who is this, who is Jesus really, is seeming to attribute that psalm to himself. He brings the Christ into focus. Why would he do that? Because he's answering the question, who is Jesus? Bringing it to himself. Now, if I was doing that, that would be incredibly arrogant and simply wrong. But what we've seen of Jesus' life and his ministry and his works is more than just a man. We have seen divine acts performed by Jesus. He is completely right in attributing this to himself. But we look at this and Jesus asks a question at the end here in Psalm 30, verse 37. Therefore David himself calls him, that is the one to come, Lord. How is he then his son? can be a little bit confusing 
by right of succession, Jesus can't be David's son and David's Lord. By right of succession, that is not a possibility. Two things should be, those two things should be contradictory in nature. But to begin with, who do the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Or how is it the Christ say that the Christ is the son of David? Take something out of that. A son of David is the Christ. We have a genealogy that we can trace. And that flows through to Jesus. This is very well understood from Scripture. We look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, particularly from verse 12 on, which we read this morning. And we see there spelled out for us very clearly that a son of David would reign forever, indicating that this would be not just a normal king, this is going to be the Christ, the Messiah. Isaiah has multiple prophecies surrounding this as well, but I've had Isaiah as a supplementary reading a lot through Mark's series, the series on Mark, so I thought we'd go to 2 Samuel this time. Jesus is throwing his hat in the ring here as the Christ. I am a son of David. You know my genealogy. You know where I'm from. You know my ancestry. This is me. And despite it being humanly impossible that Christ could be both the son and Lord of David, David is written this in Psalm 110 as Jesus reminds us by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Holy Spirit. There's a lot of things pulling at one another here. It can be confusing. And my brief, I did have a longer attempt, but even my brief attempt to try and draw out some of these things might only be serving to make this worse. I'm going to stop playing with this and get to the point. The point is that by right of inheritance, Christ can assume the throne that belongs to David's descendants, per that promise, the covenant between God and David in 2 Samuel 7. And by merit of being God, who was and is and is to come, Jesus is the Lord of David. This is how Jesus can be David's Lord and David's son. Because God himself took on human flesh and he continues to be David's Lord as there is, as we saw two weeks ago, a resurrection and eternal life. So Jesus is standing here in the temple courtyards claiming once more before the crowds that he is God. Now we might look at this and say it's not the clearest wording ever but that's okay. And we also need to remember that some things were meant to be hidden in terms of understanding until after Christ's death and resurrection, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And we go on through those things. The resurrection of Christ does show us that he is divine as he claimed. Now for the crowd there that day, the common people, as Mark describes them at the end of verse 37, did they understand 
what Jesus was saying to hear, that he was both God and man. That he was the son of David as well as David's Lord. I don't know. We don't know if they understood this. But what we do know from the end of verse 37 is that they heard people, heard Jesus gladly. The common people gladly heard him. Now, I think that's important wording there from Mark. Not everyone gladly heard Jesus teach on this. The common people gladly heard him teach on this. I think we can very easily assume that most of the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the chief priests, they wouldn't have been glad and probably had some understanding of what Christ was claiming. But most people, the common people heard heard that day gladly. And even if they didn't fully understand it yet, I'm sure they would have understood that this was something big, whatever it was. We've seen big things from Jesus. We've seen his triumphal entry. Or again, that promise of one who would be the saviour, the Messiah, was fulfilled in Christ's entry. The people responded accordingly. We've seen Jesus overturning tables in the temple courtyards, driving out the money changers and the lenders. And we see him here claiming to be God. This is huge. It's a huge claim. Now, it's not necessarily straightforward, but it's a big claim that we have the advantage of hindsight to see these things and understand these things, and most importantly, the Holy Spirit to teach us these things. And now somehow we're going to try and see how that connects to the next two little sections in Mark's Gospel. But before we do that, there's one more thing on Jesus' claim. Stop and think for a moment about the nature of God. As much as we can. Think of God's majesty. Think of his transcendence, how far above us he is. Think of his unlimited power. Think of his indescribable glory. Those are amazing things to think about and we cannot fully think about them. We can't fully comprehend any of those things there. But it gives us a bit of a picture because what Jesus is claiming for himself is unimaginably big for us. It's a claim not coming from somebody who has put on pretentious airs. It's coming from somebody who has served and loved and walked beside even the common person. But you want to know some people who are pretentious? Let's talk now about the scribes. Jesus says, beware of the scribes. Now, I think that there were some good ones, like the the dude we saw last week. But one of the ways to completely undo a lesson is to put it as uh, as Vody Borkham does, death by qualifications. You can't qualify everything. Sometimes you just need to make a statement. 
And Jesus goes on in this criticism of the scribes, the scribes who desire to go around the marketplaces wearing these long robes. I think we can understand that Jesus, speaking of the scribes in general, mostly fit a pattern. We get that they were outliers, just like within the ranks of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They would have been those who truly would have responded to the gospel. But this warning is here nonetheless, and we need to take it as Jesus says it. Beware the scribes who go around acting like the big shots that they think they are. Has anybody ever seen the TV show Little Big Shots? It ran for a few seasons in America. There was at least one season in Australia. Uh, The Australian platform didn't last too long. Now, what this show was about was that parents could sign their children with special talents or abilities up and they'd go on national television and show the whole country just how special they were. I, um, I found out about this show when, at the age of 26, my brother signed me up with an apparent special talent of being able to drink ridiculous amounts of milk per sitting. He was going to be my manager, another friend was going to be my coach, and we were going to make ourselves famous. I didn't know about this show before then. I got a lot of emails from the, uh, the, uh, the marketing company about it afterwards. Now, the, the show in itself is quite cute to see the kids go and do these things. But what was interesting is behind this, surely, surely there's some degree of outrageous arrogance from the parents who put their kids out there. And, oh, no, it's not, not me who's talented. It's my son or my daughter Look how special, look how wonderful they are. And by the way, I did teach them everything they know. You see, the scribes who walked around seeking this attention, seeking to be the most glorious people in the room and recognised as that, we see that attitude continue today. But the scribes didn't even bother to, to hide behind their kids. No, they put themselves right out there rock up to an event and they're taking for themselves they're taking the best seat that they can they need new clothes make sure they are long and flashy it's a 2000 a year ago equivalent of of sequence there's the, the all about me factor coming through here they look good they have good seats They're in the marketplace where you can greet them and rub shoulders with these famous, famous, wonderful people. But what do they really do? They take widows' houses. Underneath the flash, the splendor, the self-glorification, there is a whole lot of yuck. God commands over and over again that the widow and the orphan be looked after. And these are the men who despite looking good, steal widows' houses. And they pretend to love God by making long public prayers, which I was mindful of praying corporately today. These guys who who want to teach about God's law, they act as if they are greater than the one who truly is God. Again, God's law says to love the widow and the orphan, but these guys are going, no, thank you. I am taking your house for myself. I'm putting you out on the street. I am taking from the most impoverished and disadvantaged people around me because I think I am worthy of that. 
They show by their actions that they are worthy of glory and honour and praise when there is only one who is, and that is God. Again, this is against the backdrop of Christ claiming divinity. We've got real glory, real majesty, real power. And we have a facade because they've tricked themselves into thinking that they are worthy of the things that are truly belonging to God's. And then, still within the temple courtyard, sitting at the treasury, people come to put money into the treasury from verse 41 on. And there were people who were rich who came along. And they gave. And Jesus doesn't criticise that. Not necessarily a criticism of what we see here. They give from their abundance, however. It probably doesn't hurt a whole heap. But what the focus here is, is this poor widow. A poor widow. Coming along, I can almost see her clutching in her hand two mites because she needs to make sure that these get to the treasury in the house of the Lord. She is not going to lose these two mites. They are for God. It's all that she has. She gives to the house of the Lord for the glory of the name of the Lord God Almighty. And this is what it means to truly understand who God is. And Jesus says that she put in more than all the others. And mathematically, we've got some questions about that. But Jesus isn't talking about the maths of the giving. He's talking about the attitude and the heart. And what did we see last week? What is the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength. And she is doing that. She is putting in more than all the others. We even have an unspoken question that we can't answer. But it is raised by what Jesus has just said. Perhaps this widow had even had her house stolen away from her by the scribes. But she gives all that she has. So how do we tie all of this together? Well, as we've said, Jesus is God. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. There is a revelation of God himself being made here, a declaration of who God is. And we seem to be being shown two responses we can take, two paths laid out before us of how we respond to God. So we can use God's name, his word, his authority, and try and twist it to glorify ourselves. This is wrong. And as Jesus says here, the end of verse 40, talking about the scribes who do this, these will receive greater condemnation. That's talking about hell. Don't be like the scribes. Don't puff yourself up and beware of the scribes be careful that you don't get suckered into those who act like the scribes even today 
Now, if you want to know what a modern-day example of that might look like, Google preachers and sneakers. There's an M between the two words there. Pastors who will get up, speak about the necessity of churches tithing while wearing $5,000 plus shoes. horrifying and there is more than one who does this there are many who do this who act exactly like the scribes who jesus has said are heading towards that greater condemnation do not give in to the trap of glorifying yourself and beware of those who are prone to self-glorification as well do not follow such people Alternatively, we can be like the widow, coming with not much, perhaps not feeling like even that small amount that we have, which is all we have, is unworthy before a God who is infinite, but still giving all that we have. We can be so tempted to follow those who present themselves as being great, we can be so tempted to make a lot of ourselves as well. But how can we really do that? And we stand and we live before the God who is immortal, who is wise beyond measure, who is unlimited in his power and has revealed himself to us in deeply personal ways. We can't do that with a clear conscience before God. So in our hearts, we should rejoice that Christ is both our Lord and Saviour. We should rejoice in what he did on the cross. Because as both the heir of David and the Lord of David, as the one who is fully God and fully man, he could pay the price for us. He gave it all for us. Our response should be to give it all for him. Again, we might think that we are worthy of praise and glory. You might think that pastors and elders are, but we aren't. And God is. So glory in his goodness as you live before him and serve him every day of your lives. The call from this passage is to serve the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this amazing stance that Christ took in the temple courtyard. One where, admittedly, if it was me, I might be tempted to try and soothe the crowds and to say things that would be easier for them to take on board. But he made this wonderful proclamation of his divinity once more we thank you that this is true we thank you that this is a faithful account of the person of christ and lord god may we have much humility before you may we not seek to make make much of ourselves or our neighbors but may we glorify in your name and your goodness may your spirit lead